grateful for all that you've done for us. We thank you for grace, grace that has saved us and redeemed us out of slavery of sin and given us freedom in Christ. We also know that that, that freedom in Christ really results in, uh, in the reality that we should be slaves to righteousness. That we might recognize that the greatest sense of freedom is when we, we seek to obey the scriptures in our everyday life. And the blessings of eternal life come to those who live out their faith in the power of the Spirit and experience uh, spiritual blessings that God has promised uh, to those who walk by faith. All around us in our past, from the pages of Scripture as well as recent memory, there have been those that have loved Jesus with all of their heart. And they have walked in, in uh, front of us. They have shown us how to follow Christ all the way to the end. And I pray that you would help us to have that desire of being found faithful and to continue a legacy of faithfulness all the way to the end. We're grateful for how Roger loved you and we continue to pray for Elnora and others who have lost loved ones. We think of the grief factor that's very real and and Lord, it is your spirit that is able to uh, take the, the harshness of the edge of pain away uh, to continue to to provide joy and strength to be able to function even through some of life's greatest disappointments. I think this morning of, of those that aren't here, we have some that are shut-ins, and I think especially of John Young. I would remember him uh, to all of us and to you this morning, Lord, that you would encourage him, that he might rejoice in you and and be reminded of your love as well as our love. I think, too, of Mike Packard, and we're, we're grateful, Lord, that uh, he was able to get to the hospital when he did. Grateful for changes. And I pray that you'll continue to help him to feel better and be with Sally as she drives back and forth and tries to take care of him and be an encouragement to him. <clears throat> pray for Mike Summers today. We're glad that uh, he has a job. Pray for his, his stability and his healing, that he'll be able to go back to work tomorrow. And I remember Janet to you too, Lord, with the recent issue with her heart again and the pain and, and just not finding anything that's come, that is, uh, able to be determined what's causing it and keep her safe through the day while Mike works. We're grateful for them and their, their ministry and their love for you. Today, I also think about Dean's father. We're grateful for the news that that cancer is not in his bones and as he anticipates treatment, that you would bring relief and you would kill that cancer. And Lord, I know I, I think about others that have that have had cancer in various forms in the past and are fighting it now. I think about Jess and just to lift her to you and, and ask for a complete victory over that cancer and that you would heal her. Also think about Stacy Edkin today. And and Lord, his journey seems so much different right now and uh, seems to be struggling greatly. Uh, lift him to you and, and pray for his encouragement. And we realize that there is nothing that can come into our life that is outside of your power. Uh, there's no situation that is outside of your, your strength to act. And sometimes you choose to act dramatically and remove a problem, remove a circumstance, and other times uh, you provide the grace to go through it in such a way that we can glorify you in our body, whether by life or by death. And so whatever those occasions might be in the lives of people in our church today, 
we bring them to you and pray for a triumphant faith and a heart that is full of gratitude at what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for being good. And we love you and pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to take your Bible. We're going to read Psalm 67. And as you're turning, I'll ask you to stand. We'll read this. I'll ask you to follow along in your Bible as I read it. The heading helps us to understand a little bit more of the context. It says it's for the choir director, which meant it was going to be sung uh, by a group, and it had accompaniment with stringed instruments. It's a psalm, and it's a song. So this would be part of the worship experience of going to the tabernacle. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Selah. That Your way may be known upon the earth, Your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God, and let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for You will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear Him. Remain standing, please, as Ed leads us in singing. The title of our message this morning is called Holy Book Basics. Holy Book Basics. And before we get into it, I'm going to ask you to pray with me and ask God to help us as we work through a passage of Scripture together. Lord, we thank You for the Word of God and the direction that it gives to us. And now as we take the time to study it, the Scriptures compare it to coming to a feast and help us to dine well and be strengthened by it so we know how to live for Your honor and Your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people don't like to read books, uh, but all of us have been reading a book all week. Every day, every moment of the day, we are reading a book. It is the book that God created. It is the created world and it reveals to us aspects of the God that we love. In fact, the created world that we could call natural revelation is the first great witness of God. So as we glimpse sunrises and sunsets as we long for the spring flowers, as we wait for the leaves to come out on the mountains, as we glimpse uh, the melting ice of Niagara Falls or behold the beauty of white-tailed deer, all of these things around us uh, speak to us and it is a book that we are reading. It is the first great witness of God. Psalm 19 is where we're going to be today. Because there are two great witnesses that the, the writer David talks about. The first is the book that God created, and the second is the book that God has written. The book that God created is the world, and that is revelation through creation. The book that God has written is the Word, 
That is revelation through inscripturation. In other words, truth written down. David talks about the two great witnesses in this psalm, Psalm 19. We read the first six verses and it says, The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is the book that God created, the natural world. We see revelation through creation. It's the first great witness of God. And here's what David is telling us. The skies, the firmament, outer space, the heavens, they declare the glory of God. And the focus is on the creative name of God, Elohim. It's the first mention of God in Scripture in Genesis 1.1. And what David tells us is this, the heavens and the skies give a nonverbal speech that proclaims to all. It is a global sermon with perfect attendance. Everyone, regardless of his or her language, can understand it. This is the paradox of wordless speech. In other words, David tells us, when you look at the skies in the day, when you look at the skies at night, there is a sermon that is being preached around the world. Every man and any every woman is aware of it. Day to day pours forth speech. It's an everyday occurrence all day long and night to night reveals knowledge. Whether it's daytime or whether it's nighttime, the natural world proclaims that there is a God. Now, this is not a vocalized vocabulary. It's not verbal. Nevertheless, it is a language and it is a sermon that is understood. A nonverbal speech. That's an oxymoron. And yet it's completely understandable. When we were in Papua New Guinea a few summers back, one of the conversations that we were having together with some of the men revolved around uh, the beauty of the landscape of the mountains where we were at. And one of the comments I made to them is uh, how brilliant the stars seem to be at night. And one of the things I told them was the stars that they look at are different than the stars that we look at because of being in different hemispheres. And they get to see constellations that we don't in the north and we sing see things that they don't in the south they were amazed at that no matter where you are on the planet whether it is an island in the pacific whether you're in the north and watching the aurora borealis or whether you're on the very bottom of new zealand wherever you go in the world there is a sermon that's being proclaimed all day long and all night long The world in which we live, and particularly the skies and the heavens, declare the glory of God. There is a Creator God who is responsible for all of this. The voice, or verse 4 calls it, the line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. And probably the central focus of all of the created order is the sun. 
And David singles that out for particular emphasis in this psalm as he talks about the witness of the world. Because the sun is seen as the centerpiece. This is kind of important as you study the psalm because one of the things that defined the ancients, especially those who lived in paganism, was the worship of the sun. Egypt worshipped Ra, the sun god, and the Canaanites worshipped the sun god, and that is a, a predominant form of worship in any paganistic system around the world. Where did that sun come from? Now David knew far less about the sun than we do. He didn't know how far away it was from the earth. He didn't know that it was made up of all of these gases. He didn't know there was enough energy there to continue to burn for six billion years. He didn't understand that it was perfectly placed in relation to the earth so that we don't freeze to death because we're too far away and we don't burn to death because we're too close. He didn't understand all of that. But what he did know was this. The Son is not the supreme being. Elohim, the Creator God, is the supreme being and He is responsible for setting the sun in the sky. And it is a great apologetic. It's a, it's really a, a very strong rejection of idolatry that was prevalent in Canaan and in Egypt. The sun is not the most powerful entity. God is the most powerful entity because He made the sun. He placed it in the sky. It argues against sun worship. And this passage also would argue against God in creation and creation being God. It would argue against pantheism. It would also argue against the fact that God is more uh, is not an elevated man, that God pre-existed man because God is the creator of all things. See, David is setting a very strong case here for the worship of Israel's creator God named Elohim. The word picture of the centrality of the sun in the sky and how the, the presence of the sun and the reality of the sun points everybody's attention not to the sun but to the glory of God is this. The sun goes about its business day after day after day continually. And the word picture is this. The sun goes into a tent or into a chamber at night. And in the morning, it bursts out of the chamber in a sunrise like a guy who's heading to his wedding. And it does its business all day long and it finishes its circuit at night just like it's supposed to, like a well-trained athlete finishes its race. Day after day. The sun bursts out in the morning with a spectacular sunrise somewhere on the planet. just so happens that this morning was kind of ruined. <laughs> I was hoping it was going to be a beautiful sunrise so we could talk about it, but it was cloudy. But even if we can't see it, it's still there. <laughs> Maybe we'll see a sunset tonight. I don't know. We've, we've had some, some spectacular sunsets recently in the west off of the snow. Just been beautiful. But every single one of those sunrises and sunsets, David says, is to drive us toward God. It's the witness of the world. Proverbs 14.1 says that to live in this world, to see all the evidence around you, and to deny the existence of God is to make you a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The reality of God the reality of his existence and the fact that he has revealed himself to people is designed to cause them to think and wonder more about him. If you'll turn in your Bible, we should take the time to look at a couple of passages that, that help us to see this. Acts 14 is the first passage. 
Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they're in the town of Lystra. And and, and Paul is is trying to get the people to stop worshiping him and stop worshiping Barnabas. They have healed a lame man, and now everybody thinks that they're one of the Roman gods or Greek gods, Zeus and, and Jupiter, or Mercury, excuse me. But I want you to notice what, what Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 14. And saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Notice what he says as he appeals to them. A living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all of the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The ability, even for those who don't know God, to enjoy food, to laugh, to have some times of merriment, is a testimony that there is a God who has graced people in the world in which they live so that their attention might be drawn to Him. Paul uses a similar argument in chapter 17 when he is in Athens. He gets there and he looks at this this idol that says to the unknown God and he says, I want to talk to you about this one that you don't know. And he begins to preach Jesus Christ But he begins with creation in verse 24. This is how he starts. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own prophets have said, we are all, we are also all are His children. The idea here in Paul's sermon is that God would reach those who, when they look at creation, would determine that there is a God that is knowable. We would look at it and say, if somebody looked at the created order and determined that there is a God and they would long to know Him, that God would reach them. He would find them. He would bring them a greater witness. This is Paul's truth in his argument to the Athenians. The reality is, though, according to Romans chapter 1, that people instinctively and intrinsically know about the existence of God, they just don't respond in the right way. Romans chapter 1 tells us these things, beginning with verse 18. Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, For God made it evident to them. There's the knowledge of the conscience. The knowledge of God from the world in which they live. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power 
and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. You look at creation. This is the sermon that takes place in Psalm 19. Wherever you live in the world, you look at creation. There is an internal witness in each person, their conscience. They know that there is a God. There is the sermon of the created order that tells them there is a God who has eternal power and divine attributes so that all people are without excuse. And this is what people do with that. Though they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The reality of God's power and the evidence of His deity convicts holding all people accountable. One of the things I want you to see as you consider what David has said in the opening six verses of Psalm 19 is this. God's sermon through creation is sufficient to call people generally and convict them, but it is not sufficient enough to convert them. There is the witness of the world which convicts all people, but it does not convert them. That's why it's a dangerous thing when somebody says, I can be as close to God going out into nature and worshiping as I can being with people. You might want to think about that in the context. God is in nature. You can see that there is a God who has created all things. You can know that there is someone who is all-powerful. The Scriptures tell us that. But the witness of the world is to convict. It is not to convert. And that's why, even though the witness of the created order is far larger, the witness of the written book is far more powerful because it is the witness that brings people to salvation. David takes us from the created order to the written book. We work from the witness of the world to the witness of the world. Or excuse me, to the witness of the word. You go from one book to the second. The first book is the book that was created. The second book is the one that was written down. And David makes this case in verses 7 through 14 of Psalm 19. And this is where we need to talk about the fact that David looks at this book and says, this book is different from every other book on the planet. This book is different than any other book that will ever be written. This is a special book. This is a unique book. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. 
And also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is going to use a series of words. There are six of them, and they're synonymous. They all are talking about the written book, which we call the Bible or truth or scripture. Yet each word has has its own flavor or nuance, and it requires the reader to make a decision about how they're going to be be using the book, how they're going to view the book. And one of the things that we need to talk about this morning is we need to ask ourselves the question, how do I view the Word of God? How do I view this book? Is it an encyclopedia that I go to just to get knowledge about prophecy questions? Is it a medicine cabinet that whenever I get to the point in my life and I think I can't handle it anymore, I quick and I run for a Bible verse that might function as a band-aid or an aspirin in order to get me through life? Or is it greater? Is it the center of my life? Do I realize that life cannot take place without having the Word of God at the center? How do I see the book? Holy Book Basics this morning. There are six words that David uses to talk about Scripture. Each one has a flavor that we need to grab a hold of. Each one brings a response. The first is verse 7. Notice what it says. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word law here is the word Torah. It is referring to the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. It is an overarching word that describes really the whole Old Testament. The law. Sometimes it's called the law, the prophets, and the writings. Other times the Old Testament is just called the law. It is a comprehensive, overarching term. But notice what David says about its description. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. This is not a man-made book. This is the law of the Lord. And here we have a, a great change. Because when you look at creation, you look at God's power, and that is reflected in His name, Elohim. The creative name of God. But when you look at the creative genius of God through the pages of Scripture, you are looking at the book of Yahweh, the Lord. It becomes much more personal, much more direct, much more joyful, much more effective. The law of the Lord, the comprehensive revealed will that we have in front of us is from the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who keeps His promises, the God of covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. It is the law of the Lord and He says it is perfect. That means it's flawless, it's complete. That means that the law of God is not deficient in any way, but rather it is sufficient in every way. There is no way in which the Scriptures are inadequate for the people of God to use. It is impossible for this book to fail us in life and ministry. Absolutely impossible because it is from God. It is complete. The law of God is perfect. And the result is, David says, it restores the soul. The idea of restoring here is 
reviving of 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 ministering that's why Moses would tell the children of Israel later on in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 4 he would say remember the words of the Lord man does not live by bread alone what had god been providing for his people day in and day out when their food supply ran out one month after the journey started what did he begin throwing on the ground every morning for Israel to pick up? Manna, bread. And for 38, 39 years, almost 40 years, every morning you flip open your temp flap and you walk out and there's breakfast. And there's lunch. You didn't have to go to the market of Sinai to get your food. And at night, God would bring quail. He would bring the carbs in the morning and the protein at night and you had the wonderful water from the rock and he was taking care of his people. You get to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 4 and all of a sudden it comes alive for us. He says, when you get into the land, remember this, the manna is going to cease. God's going to provide for you. He's going to bless your socks off if you live according to the covenant. You'll have more food than you'll know what to do with. But remember this, man does not live by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect. It is sufficient. It never can be deficient. And when you take it into your life, it revives and restores the soul. I think that's a pretty good promise for brokenhearted people. People that need reviving. The people that need restoration. And the question I have for you this morning is, if you are wanting relief for your broken heart, are you spending more time in the Scriptures or less? Because the law of the Lord is perfect. It is sufficient and it will restore your soul. Here's the second thing David says. The second word is, he calls it the testimony of the Lord. That is sure and it makes wise the simple. When you think of the word testimony, you need to remember that the Bible is trustable or trustworthy. The word testimony means truth attested by God Himself. In other words, the testimony of the Lord. This is what God has put down as if God is the witness. He cannot lie. And so what He has given to us in the Word is to be trusted. And the trustworthy Word can make one wise even if you're not well educated, but you are willing to obey. Some of you may have never even heard of this guy that I'm about to talk to, talk about, but his name was uh, often referred to as Joel of Jerusalem, and then he was also known by his his given name, Zvi. It was spelled Z-V-I in English. He was a Polish Jew. He died recently, back in November. Uh, he was a survivor of the Holocaust during the Second War. His mother took him to an orphanage, dropped him off, and said that she would come and visit him every week. He never saw any of his family members again. He used to help scavenge food and take it into the ghettos in Poland. Somehow, under the guidance and the protection of God, he survived the war. And, and in God's directing his life, he made his way to the, to the land of Israel. And Zvi fought in every major battle of Israel's history. His job was a mine remover. He was called a sapper, and he would be out 
ahead of the soldiers and they would be working in the minefields and it was his job to find the mines and to disarm them and clear the way for the Israeli army. God protected him through all of those experiences. He ended up getting married. He he married a, a beautiful Iranian girl. Isn't this interesting? A Jewish man marrying a Persian woman who was Jewish. But the interesting thing about this man is he, he never really had a lot of education, schooling-wise. He wasn't well-educated and well-trained, but he was an extremely smart person. He spoke nine languages. But the most impressive thing about Zvi as I look at his life and his story is he was a man who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. His wife came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And so they were Jewish people who were believers in Jesus Christ and they raised their their children that way. Their children are saved. And now there is a Bible-believing church that would be just like ours in the city of Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Assembly. He was a part of that. But what I want you to know about Zvi that is so amazing is even though he was a man of very simple education, he was a man that was so thoroughly saturated by the Scriptures. He had a, a little blue Bible that was the Old Testament and the New Testament written in Hebrew. And every day he would go and go out visiting and he would go into some of the most hostile territories in Jerusalem and visit Hasidic Jews and go to their learning centers and debate with rabbis and they would sit down and he would begin to open up God's Word and he would open up Isaiah 53 and say, who is this talking about? And all they used to get so frustrated and so angry and just vehement. But his love for God and his love for people and his belief that Jesus Christ was the answer compelled him to do this. But the reason I'm telling you this is he was not a well-educated man in terms of his schooling. But the testimony of the Lord makes the simple wise. You do not have to go to seminary to have an effective life in ministry. You do not have to go to college. But what you do have to do is sit at the feet of the master teacher and drink deeply from the testimony of the Word that is sure because it makes wise the simple. The surety of the Word. It means it's trustworthy. It's trustable. So if you're wanting to know how to live your life, if you want to know the questions and the answers, if you want to know you're asking the right questions, and if you want to know you, you have the right answers to those questions, the only way you're going to have that is if you're in the Word. I guess I must speed this up a little bit. Verse 8, David says, the precepts, the precepts of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The idea of precepts here is that when you think of a precept, you're talking about a specific. When when God gives us the Word, there are times where He gives us precise specifics for life. And when you follow them, there is rejoicing in the heart. In other words, the Word that is obeyed can lead to a joyful life. A functional question to ask at this point is, if I'm lacking joy in my life in following the Lord Jesus Christ, should I be looking for specific ways in which I'm being disobedient? Because the precepts or the specific things that God has said to do and to believe, 
directly impact whether or not I'm going to have a joyful heart. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 17, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. There is the reality of knowledge, there is the determination to obey, and the result is the blessing of God. That's what David's talking about. The precepts of the Lord are to be obeyed. It results in a joyful heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It is, it is radiant. It enlightens the eyes. In other words, the Word of God, when it is studied, will never steer you wrong. That's why the psalmist can write in Psalm 119, 105, My word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When I take it into my life, when I am having it and granting it functional control over my life, it lightens the way I'm supposed to go. David says this, another word, he talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. If the fear of the Lord is referring to the word, it means that it endures forever without decay. That helps us to realize that it will always be relevant and timeless. Its character and nature are as true today as in the day of Noah or Moses or David or Paul. If the fear of the Lord refers to the Word of God, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is timeless. So as we interact with our culture that seems to be more and more confused. And just when you think it can't get any more confusing, you can read a story like this week where marriage has not been defined by a man and a man or a woman and a woman. It was defined by three men in Thailand getting married. And so the world continues to get more and more confused. I want you to understand that the Scriptures are are timeless. They endure forever. They will always be relevant. They will always be accurate. They will never go out of style or become irrelevant, no matter what the world thinks. That means you'll always be able to use them for your marriage. You'll always be able to use them for your child rearing. You'll always be able to use them to know how the church of God ought to conduct itself and what it looks like in worship. You will always be able to use the Scriptures for everything. Because the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. David says, finally, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are judicial decisions that he has recorded about various situations. Whatever the Lord has declared about something is true. It is right and it is accurate and it is not going to change. That's why when we talk about morality issues, we believe that God has made a judicial decision. When we talk about nation issues, God has made a judicial decision. When we talk about honoring your father and mother, when we talk about not stealing, when we talk about how we talk about God and how we use His name, and we we exhort people to not lie, when we exhort people to do the commands of the New Testament, God has made a judicial decision. He has declared specifically What behavior is acceptable and what isn't? These are things that are true and right and accurate and they're not going to change. So as I I read down through these verses, questions come to my mind like this. If God is precise in His Word, the precepts and the commandments, if there is a precision 
in those things? Does my life lack precision? Does the way that I am living seem cloudy and dim? I would suggest to you that the answer is not less of God's Word. David says it's more. It's more of God's Word. The more I take in the study of Scripture, the the clearer and in the sharper focus things become. If the fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever, if the fear of the Lord refers to a human response, then I need to ask myself the question, is my time in the Word of God increasing my reverence for Him? And as I think about the judgments of God and the fact that He has made certain decisions upon which there is no other argument, there is no debate, I should be asking myself the question, do I agree with God's verdicts and God's declarations? Do I agree with Him? Do you agree with God? It's a dangerous thing to disagree with God. It's a dangerous thing to to argue with God. It's a dangerous thing to grumble against Him. When we look at these six synonyms in Psalm 19, we realize that it gets summed up in one word in the New Testament. It's the word Scripture. Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God. The writings, the revealed or the written Word of God. We could talk more about that at another time. But I want you to notice, as David comes to the end of this psalm, what is so important. As he contemplates the role that the Word of God has in his life, there are two responses. The first is a response of praise, and the second is a response of prayer. Verse 10, when he considers the Word of God, his first response of praise is that he says, the Word of God is more desirable than gold, and it is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Gold was the most expensive substance in David's day, and honey was the sweetest substance in David's day. What David is saying is, give me God's Word more than all of the wealth and all of the sugar in the world. That's how precious it is. It's more valuable than gold, and it's sweeter than honey. I think about sweet. There are certain times of the year where sweetness comes into play. There is the first deacon's meeting of the year where all of the guys expect PBMC. That's peanut butter melt-away cake. There are certain times of the year where people in the room expect either a peach pie or a coconut cream pie. There are certain meetings in the year where people expect Mr. Stickies. We look at sweetness and we say, that is a gift to our palate. Can I get an amen in the house for confections? David says that the word is sweetness to our soul. And if life is going sour, don't allow the difficulties of life to push you away from the word. Allow it to make you dive into it. Because it's better than gold and sweeter than honey. That's his first response of praise. Second thing is, David says, the more that you're in the Word, the more spiritually alert you become. Verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. There is a need to be warned. And we could go into that, we could study that out in the New Testament over and over and over. 
to beware about letting your guard down regarding false teachers, to regard regarding so many other things. But the fact is, David says, this is a reason to praise because the Word of God helps to sound the warning for life. And thirdly, the third reason to praise is that there is blessing. In keeping the Word of God, there is great reward. Listen, we believe this, we teach this when we get to the to the chapter on faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us all that God says it's worth it to live out our faith in obedience. Because it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, that God exists and that he is who he says he is and that his attributes are as he says they are, that he will do what he says he will do. It is agreeing with the Scriptures about what the Scriptures tell us about who God is. Faith means coming to God and believing that He is. There's a great danger of having God being created in your own image. You must not do that. You must let the Scriptures tell you who God the Father is and what what He does. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in the written revelation of God. You must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God says, you follow me by faith, I will make it worth it. He's not promising overwhelming financial wealth. He's not promising to take away every disease. He is promising though, then in the grand and eternal scheme of things, you and I will never regret engaging in a life of faith in this short time on this earth. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And David says, in real time in his life, if I pursue the God of the Scriptures, I am not only warned, but when I follow the Scriptures, there is great reward. Even if that reward means not experiencing the consequences of sin, isn't that worth it? Does it have to be a fat checkbook? Does it have to be a life that's free from a a chronic illness? Does it have to be a a life that is, is not poor? Does it have to be a life that guarantees me at least one new car? Or is it perhaps maybe enough to realize that what we really deserved was a full cup of God's wrath? And that in the fact that Jesus took our punishment and took that our wrath away and put it on Christ, even if He gave us an empty cup, we should be grateful for that because we deserve the full wrath in that first cup. But He doesn't just do that. The Scripture says He gives us another cup that is overflowing with His grace. Even if He gave me an empty cup, it should be good enough because I don't deserve that. But in Christ, He gives me a cup that is overflowing with His grace grace and His blessings. That's what David is saying. There's a reason why studying the book and taking in is such a powerful part of my life. He says it's more desirable than gold or the sweetest produce of the land. He says it's worth studying because it makes me alert. It helps me to be warned spiritually. And there is great blessing. So here's how he ends this psalm. He prays. He prays four things. And I'm going to encourage you to pray this way. 
in response to your Bible study. Lord, when I study the Scriptures, help me to become more discerning. That's what David says. Look at it, please. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. David wanted to be discerning and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't living in sin. And sometimes you just can't always see the weaknesses in your own life. So David, as he studies the Scripture, says, Lord, make me more discerning. Use the Word to reveal what's going on in my life. That's his first prayer request. Here's the second thing I would encourage you to pray. Lord, protect me. Keep me back from sin so that I'm not dominated by sin habits. Verse 13, Keep your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. And then I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. When you're studying the Scripture, one of the prayer requests that is worth asking for and pleading for is, Lord, protect me. Keep me back from sin and life-dominating sin habits. Here's the third thing. Verse 13, I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Lord, help me to have integrity in the way that I'm living life. Help me to have integrity. A life of integrity is not the same as a life of perfection. Because if that was true, every single one of us would quit. We wouldn't be able to keep going. The Scriptures tell us there's only been one person who's ever been perfect. Praise the Lord, O my soul, for Jesus Christ. But a life of integrity is someone who is close to God, and when something comes up, they deal with it. A life of integrity is someone, as the Scripture calls, be blameless. And David's prayer is that as he is in the Word, that he would be blameless and acquitted of great transgression. I want to tell you something, that every sin that we commit is a great transgression. Every sin is a great transgression because every sin is an assault against the holiness and the glory of God. Every sin ultimately will find its way back to the root of pride and self-exaltation. That's what Satan did in Isaiah 14 when he said, I will be like the Most High. That is the root of it all. Every sin, every time I fail to give God His due, I am assaulting His glory and attacking His holiness. Every sin is a great transgression. David says, I don't want to be like that. And I hope that part of our interacting with the text is God I want to be more discerning. So I recognize and see the danger ahead of time. God, I want to be protected from life-dominating sins. And God, I want to be a person of integrity. And fourthly, God, I want to be more worshipful. Verse 14. If you see the combination of words and thought patterns here, it's such a beautiful thing. David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And he closes with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Those combination of words this morning provide such strength 
As we think of Lord, we are reminded of a God who keeps covenant. As we think of rock as the one we run to, and we have our security in the times of storm and deliverance. And as we think of my Redeemer, we realize the one who has set us free from the curse of sin and death. He has given us forgiveness through His shed blood, and we have the hope of eternal life. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior today, when you pray, you are always able to go to the Father in the name of your Redeemer the one who has set you free. So David says, Lord, use the word to change me. Change my thoughts, change my words, change my motives. I want my life to please you, to glorify you, to bring you honor and glory. So Warren Wiersbe says this to sum up this psalm. The word of God in the hand is fine, The word in the head is better, but the word in the heart is what transforms us and matures us in Christ. It's when the word gets into the heart level that we begin to see the changes that God wants to produce through the working of His Spirit. It can't be a band-aid. It can't be, it can't be like cold medicine that you only go to it when you've got a problem. It can't be just an encyclopedia for for the things that you like to study. It must be the, the guide and the rule and the authority for every area of life. Man cannot live life to the glory of Christ without the Word of God. Jesus said so. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We look at the world, and though it is marred and cursed, we can marvel at the handiwork of the God of heaven. So too, when we look into the Word, which is unmarred and without error, we can revere and rejoice in God who has revealed Himself through Scripture. This is His witness to us. can't stress to you how important it is for us all to be people of the book. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please uh, take the truth of Psalm 19 and weave it into our life? Help us to not have short memories where we walk away and forget some of the things that we have worked through and and tried to wrestle with and explained. But we might be... uh, We might have our appetite wet for more, for more of you, to know you more deeply, to know what you're doing, how you operate, and how you want to work in our life. I praise you for David. I praise you for his view of the Scriptures. Thank you for the opportunity we have with all of the tools that we have and all of the Bible study helps and all of the different versions, how incredibly easy it is for us right now to study the truth and to use it in everyday life. So Lord, with this, privilege comes great responsibility. I pray that you'll plant these things deep within us so that we bring forth fruit in keeping with Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in his name. Amen.